Welcome to the New City Church Podcast. New City is a church in Bath, Maine that exists to make disciples, develop leaders, and plant churches that multiply. This week, Pastor Joel Littlefield is preaching through Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 1 through 13, and the sermon title is God Wants You to Prosper. We hope you are blessed by the message today. All right, this is Jeremiah 29, verses 1 to 14. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Al-Alsa to the son of Shaphan and Gamariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all of your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. This is the word of the Lord, saints. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, help us to understand your word today. Thank you for your grace and the mercy that allows us to be here in this moment. Lord, to have fellowship together, to come under the teaching of your word We are grateful, Lord, but this, we need your spirit. We need your spirit to teach us. We need you, God, to illuminate our hearts and our understanding. Father, I pray for the, my brothers and sisters in this room today, God, that you would meet them right now in the moment um, where they are, the burdens they carry, what they're facing, Lord, the joys that they have, and that today your word would be uh, exactly what we need to hear. We know it is. We trust you. We believe in you, Lord. We believe you are the author and finisher of our faith. We believe that you are good and you are a faithful mediator. 
We pray for our hearts to have understanding, but also to respond in faith today, faith and repentance, joy in the gospel, but not only joy, but obedience, obedience to what you tell us. Give us now ears to hear, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, well, good morning, everybody. I know I don't say that very much, so I kind of cut you off guard, but the response is fine. Good morning, church. This is, uh, it's good to be here again, and we are continuing in our series this morning, and uh, the text that we're going to be particularly focusing on is Jeremiah 29, verse 11, which I'm sure is the one out of that entire reading that you all say, oh, I know that one, right? It just, just stood out to you. We've seen it all over the place. But if you're just jumping in with us for the first time today, this is part four of a series called Rightly Handling the Truth, and so we've done several already. And we've basically taken a brief pause from our regular preaching through whole books of the Bible to, to do this. And so what we've been doing is selecting popular Bible passages that are commonly taken out of context, misused, and then misapplied. So in week one, we looked at, behold, I stand at the door and knock out of Revelation. We sort of dismantled that a little bit in the common thinking of what that is used for, and we've looked at the context of it, what it means. Then the second week, we looked at the phrase, God is love, out of 1 John, and really, I think, did a great in-depth study on what that actually means, that God is love. Week three, we looked at this idea of being under the law but not under grace out of Romans chapter 6 and verse 14. We are not under the law but under grace, and that is often misunderstood, misapplied, and so we looked at that. Today, we're looking at Jeremiah 29, 11. I'll read it again for you. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. It's a beautiful sounding verse standing on its own. And it it is. And I promise you that my goal is not to somehow tell you that the real context is that this verse is just a downer, right? (laughs) I'm not trying to say, well, it's really not what you think it is. It's not good news at all. It's It's not that. But without the context, we simply cannot know the full effect of what it means. Uh, the greatest glory and the joy of what it would mean to what it, what this text means in its context, or how to accurately apply it to our lives, and that's the whole purpose of what we're doing with this series. So, without really having the time to give a, a full sermon on Jeremiah twenty six, seven, eight, nine, and thirty to give the full surrounding context, I'm going to ask that you trust me as I lay out the general context that is surrounding Jeremiah twenty nine. Of course, I would encourage you to read the text later in its fullness, and, and I believe that after even a, a small study like this, maybe this prophet, this writing that maybe you even just avoid sometimes because it's complicated, it might start to come to life a little bit. What you'll notice is that there's even some similarities between this study in Jeremiah and what we just studied in Daniel. It's the same time frame, just so you know. These are, this is to the exiles, the same exiles that Daniel was a part of. It's the same time frame, just so you know. But the context of Jeremiah 29 is this. I'm going to just give you four bullet points. The first is that Jeremiah is writing a letter in Jeremiah 29, a, a letter to leaders among Jewish, Jewish exiles in Babylon who had survived the invasion. So that's what this is. It's a letter to surviving leaders among the Jewish exiles. That's in verse 1 of chapter 29. You can see it right there in the text. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles. That's pretty clear to see. That's the context. 
Secondly, when you go back a chapter, chapter 28 tells us that the reason for the letter was because of false prophets who were giving false hope to those Jewish exiles. That's an important context to have in mind when interpreting Jeremiah 29, 11. It's written because of false prophets who were giving false hope to Jewish exiles. And then how were they giving false hope? What, what was the... Uh, the, the, what was the method that they were using? Well, they preached a false hope by prophesying. They were false prophets. They preached a false hope by prophesying these things, quick trials, speedy recoveries, and soon-to-come restoration. That's what the prophets were telling the exiles. It's going to be over quick, speedy recoveries, quick trials. But it was God who had placed them in Babylon in exile for a purpose. That's the context. Why are they in Babylon? It was God who allowed that exile, but not only allowed that exile, we've seen it even in the text that we read today, God placed them there. God put them in exile as a consequence of their disobedience and rebellion. And so this is God sovereignly at work. And this goes back to even chapter 27, where we see the sovereignty of God on display. So I do want you to go back to chapter 27 with me, just a few pages back. Chapter 7, beginning in verse 5, we're going to read to verse 7 to get an even broader context of what's going on. It is I, it says, who by my great power and my outstretched arm have made the earth with the men and animals that are on the earth. And I give it to whomever it seems right to me. This is the Lord speaking. Now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. Notice what he calls Nebuchadnezzar. My servant. He does my bidding. This is what he's saying. Nebuchadnezzar, what he does, it's at my bidding. He's my servant. And I have given him also the beasts of the field to serve him. All the nations shall serve him and his son and his grandson until the time of his land comes, his own land comes. Then many nations and great kings shall make him their slave. And of course, we see that carry out as the prophecies are fulfilled regarding Nebuchadnezzar and, and many, much of what we've learned about in Daniel. Isn't that, isn't that kind of cool to make those connections? So we learned some of this in Daniel, like I said, that God allowed or even caused the exile of Israel as a consequence of their rebellion and by placing Nebuchadnezzar in power to serve God's ultimate purpose. That shows us God's sovereignty for sure over this. It was God's will that for a determined season, the people of God would serve him in Babylon, which was a foreign land of idolatry and wickedness. That's the setting. And God is saying, I am the one who created the earth. I'm the one who created Nebuchadnezzar. He is my servant. He does my bidding. I'm the one who's in control, the Lord is saying. But just like today, when God's people are in the midst of trials, which you might be in the midst of one as we speak, and I don't mean to just say that to try to like pull at your heartstrings. The, 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 the really, there's a really good chance that we're all in trial right now of some degree. Would you agree? Some sort of trial. And just like for us today, false prophets come along and bring a message of false hope to us. And it is happening all the time. In the midst of your trial, in the midst of hardship, in the midst of struggle, and trying to figure out the Lord's will for your life, in the midst of your trial, there are false prophets and false teachers all around our globe and our communities that are going to speak as a response to the hardship that you're going through, and they're going to speak falsely, and they're going to lie to you. And we need to be able to know who are the people that are lying to us, and what is the lie. 
In Jeremiah 27, verse 9, this is what the Lord says. So do not listen to your prophets, your diviners, your dreamers, your fortune tellers, or your sorcerers who are saying to you, you shall not serve the king of Babylon. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you with the result that you will be removed far from the land and I will drive you out and you will perish. This is so specific that the Lord is even saying to the Jewish exiles, if they tell you don't serve the king of Babylon, even that is a lie. God intended for them to be in exile, and while they're in exile, to make use of their time and to actually serve and be a blessing in Babylon. And the text that we read already kind of lays that out even more specifically in what he is to have them do. But he's laying out to them, this is part of the lie. The lie that says, you shall not serve the king of Babylon. There were people around them saying, no, you shouldn't serve the king. You shouldn't be a part of this community, this culture, this society. Part of their false prophesying was evidenced in the fact that they contradicted the direct word of God. And that's one way that you and I can know that. One way that you and I can know whether somebody's words are false or not, whether they are truth, is whether they contradict God's word. And what do we need to do regularly in order to be able to measure that. Saints, what do we need to be able to do? What do we need to do regularly to be able to have that barometer of false prophecy and true? What do we need to do? Just tell me. What is it? Read the Word. We need to be in the Word. If we don't know the Word of God, we will not know what is true and what is false. And that is a problem in our world today. Christians just don't read their Bibles. I don't know the latest status but it's, it's staggering when we read the number of pro- professing Christians who actually read the Bible, and then it's even worse when we say, who are the ones that read the Bible and believe it? And it is an incredibly low number. And so it's not a surprise when we see false prophets that speak into lives of Christians, and then those Christians believe those lies, and that becomes their Christianity. But we need to form our lives around the Word of God. God brought them into captivity. And it was not going to be a quick moment, but it was going to be a time of testing. That was the intention for this season, a time of patience building. God had a design for these years that they would be in exile, that it would work out for God's glory and for their good. They would be tested. There would be patience building. They would be learning to trust God through this trial and through this time. But many were preaching the opposite of that, that it would be quick. Your trials will soon be over. It's not going to be a problem. Get out of Babylon. Stop serving the king. You guys see the contrast? And so God said through Jeremiah in verse 16 of that same chapter, do not listen to the words of your prophets who are prophesying to you, saying, behold, the vessels of the Lord's house will now shortly be brought back from Babylon, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you. Do not listen to them. Serve the king of Babylon and live. That's God's word to them. Serve the king of Babylon and live. The prophets were saying, behold, the vessels of the Lord, the Lord's house will now shortly be brought back from Babylon. But that was a lie too. Remember, by the time it's all said and done, all of the vessels will actually be brought from Jerusalem into the king's chambers. And it's worth pointing out that God even gave them a simple test to prove whether they had integrity as a prophet or not. Check this out. Look at verse 18 of chapter 27. The Lord says, If they are prophets, and if the word of the Lord is with them, then let them intercede with the Lord of hosts, 
that the vessels that are left in the house of the Lord, in the house of the king of Judah and in Jerusalem, may not go to Babylon. So apparently at this time, there were still some remaining vessels. Nebuchadnezzar had ordered that all of those vessels of the house of the Lord would be brought into the king's chambers, but there were still a few left. And God said, well, here's the test. Have them intercede with God that, no, that the ones that remain will not be brought into Babylon. And so that was a great test because, in fact, like I said, they all were taken out of Jerusalem and out of the temple by the time it was all said and done. And it would be that way until the day, a day that God had in mind, the day that the Lord visits them and says, it is enough. Okay, so that's an important backdrop just to review. Number one, it's a people in exile because God placed them there. That's the context. Number two, God's desire for them to stay in Babylon to serve the king there and live. That's part of the context we're seeing. That's God's desire for them that they stay in Babylon, serve the king there, and live. And number three, is there's a world full of false prophets who contradict the sovereign word of God and give a false hope to God's people. That's what's happening. Chapter 28 goes on and gives an account of one of the false prophets in particular. Now, I want to just zero in on this because this does help us see a little bit of how these false prophets operate. And maybe you can think about this and line this up with stuff that we hear in our world today. So here's the words in Jeremiah 28, verses 2 through 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Now, just to give you a context, this is the word of the false prophet Hananiah. He's using that phrase that we like to hear, thus says the Lord. All the prophets say that. But this is Hananiah, and he says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon within two years, he says. I will bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. I will also bring back to this place of Jeconiah, this place Jeconiah, the sons of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and all the exiles from Judah who went to Babylon, declares the Lord, for I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. I I don't know if if you're like me, you would hear that and go, yes. Right? Our flesh wants quick recovery. So when he says, I've broken the yoke, of Nebuchadnezzar, and it's going to be two years, and then I'm going to rescue you. That's what the false prophet is declaring. Hananiah goes so far as to give a visual, and he takes the wooden yoke that Jeremiah had worn in giving his prophecy, because if you go back earlier, Jeremiah takes a yoke and he puts it on his shoulders to visualize the yoke that would be upon Judah and Jerusalem yoked with Nebuchadnezzar. So this false prophet comes in, I don't know how he does it, I mean, strong guy, cracks a yoke over his knee. I don't know, but he breaks the yoke, and he gives this visual. Later, Jeremiah comes back with a word from the Lord and says, you've broken the wooden yoke, it's been replaced with an iron one. That's the word of the Lord. Listen to the indictment in verse 15 of that same chapter. Listen, Hananiah, this is what the prophet says. Listen, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you, and you have made this people trust a lie. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I will remove you from the face of the earth. And that's the indictment that comes upon Hananiah, the false prophet. It's really sketchy waters to be prophesying, just so you know. If you ever try to prophesy, or if you're around people who say, thus saith the Lord, be weary, be leery, be warned, 
very strict, very tight standards for the prophet of God. You cannot be wrong. And if you declare the word of the Lord and you do so outside of God's revealed written word, you are playing with fire. I hear indictments like this against Hananiah who said, thus says the Lord, and it wasn't the Lord's word. And what happens? Look at the response. If you go all the way to the end of chapter 29, verse 31, skip over there, Jeremiah 29, 31. Thus says the Lord concerning Shemaiah of Nehalam, another false prophet, because Shemaiah had prophesied to you when I did not send him and has made you trust in a lie. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will punish Shemaiah of Nehalam and his descendants. He shall not have anyone living among his people, and he shall not see the good that I will do to my people, declares the Lord, for he has spoken rebellion against the Lord. So in this time frame, in this context, we have two false prophets, Hananiah and Shemaiah, both of them declaring false words from God that the, that the true prophet comes in and says, no, this is the word of God, and because you have prophesied falsely, you're going to be brought to ruin, and you will not see the good that I'm going to do upon my people. Shemaiah had basically sent letters to Zephaniah, the priest, accusing Jeremiah of being the false prophet. Isn't that interesting? There's letters going back and forth. And this false prophet sends a message to the priest saying, why aren't you stopping Jeremiah from preaching these words to the people of God? And they're basically saying, he should not be saying things like this, your exile will be long, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. He didn't like that Jeremiah was preaching this. He didn't like that Jeremiah was saying to God's people, stay in the land, be fruitful, multiply, build houses, marry off your children, be fruitful in the land, and serve God by serving the king while you're in that land. So, how does Jeremiah 29.11 fit into all of this? Isn't that interesting? Just that context alone gives us a different taste of what is happening. In the midst of this letter that he's sending to correct false prophets, we have that amazing phrase in Jeremiah 29 11. How does it fit all in, into all of that? Well, it's in the midst of that letter. It's to the exiled leaders in order to correct false teaching. And remember that the lie was that the exile would soon be over and they would be free from the yoke of Babylon, and that was the lie. Now here's the word from the Lord that Jeremiah gives to them. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is in now verse 5 of chapter 29. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not Listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. Verse 10, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years, there's a big difference between two years and 70 years. God had decreed 70 years. The false prophets were saying in two years, it'll be done. 
When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. And of course it goes on and you cannot have Jeremiah 29, 11 without 12, 13, 14 and so much of that promise is rooted in that relationship that we see in the following verses how God will hear their prayers and how they will find God when they seek Him with all their heart. Since the whole context is God's word to an exiled people, I just want to point out that we know immediately that we cannot interpret Jeremiah 29.11 in a way that says God's people shouldn't struggle or suffer, which is how that verse is so commonly used. When you begin to feel any sort of pain or go through any sort of trial, somebody might throw this verse at you. Well, God has a future and hope for you. Don't, God's thoughts for you are great. So get out of this trial. Don't worry. He must not have you here long. It's just right around the corner. Freedom is coming. But it may not be. It might not be. Do we know how long our trials are going to be? We never know. We know in an ultimate sense, which Jeremiah does get to that point, in an ultimate sense, we know that our trials are limited. But on this earth, we do not know. So I just want to take a minute and allow us to sort of think like humans here, like those who are in exile. Exile for these Jews meant loneliness. And maybe you line up with some of this, just humanity. Meant loneliness, unknown futures. For them, it really meant new neighbors, right? They're in a brand new land, new people around them all the time. New relationships to be built. New leaders, Nebuchadnezzar, nothing like the king of Judah, <laughs> the kings of Jerusalem that have come and gone. Overwhelming sadness because of a longing for home and familiarity. That was what it would have been like for them to be human there. A longing for familiarity. This is not my home. I'm not used to living in Babylon with pagans everywhere, pagan gods and worship of false deities. This is what they would have been feeling. Clashes of belief systems. You ever dealt with that at work or in your neighborhood where your belief system comes in direct clash with somebody else's belief system? It gives you a little taste of what it would be like to live in Babylon as a Jew, to serve a completely holy, awesome God who is sovereign over all the world and who is God over all gods, and then you're in a culture that elevates a variety of deities. People just not getting what you mean when you speak about God or what it means to be a chosen people of God, to be called out of this world, to be different and to be holy. Most people don't understand what that means, to be called out, to be different, to be separate, to be God's people. All of humanity gets this as a whole to some degree because all of us were made as eternal beings with spirits that were designed to know God and dwell in His presence. So there is a longing, there is a similarity in some sense that we can see this fingerprint of God in the entire world, the entire human race, all image bearers of God have this upon them, this design that they were designed to dwell in the presence of God. And in that sense, in the design sense, humanity longs for God but cannot find Him. Humanity as a whole longs for God, but they cannot see Him, as Ecclesiastes says. But the Christian is an exile in the fact that the new nature that we are given in Christ completely clashes with the world and its trajectory. 
And that's where we begin to find some application. As we are in Christ, who we are as new believers, new people in Christ, new creations, that clashes with the world and its trajectory. But the Christian is called to live every day in this tension. Brothers and sisters, you are called to live, actually live, not hide, not run for the hills as many of us manners want to do, but live in the tension of two worlds, that we are kings, or we are sons and daughters of God, we are heirs of Jesus Christ, that we are part of a kingdom that is not of this world, but we live in this world. We live in that tension, the tension of I'm going home someday, but I'm not home yet. I want familiarity. I want to be around only people that I agree with, but we're not there yet. This idea that I belong to God, the world is hostile toward God, but I'm called to love those who are hostile to God. We still have to be around the people that are hostile to God, that disagree with us, that have a different worldview, to love them as these Jews were called to live amongst them. These exiles were commanded to build. I think this is just such an awesome command. You build, live, marry, marry off your children, procreate, multiply. Those are positive commands. But in verse 6, you notice he says, do not decrease. I think that's great. I love that. I think we should be thinking about that. How maybe have you decreased? Decreased in your witness because of fear? Decreased in your effectiveness for the kingdom because of the busyness of life? Or all that you're trying to escape? We can come out of the world so much that we become so ineffective. So there needs to be a balance. There needs to be a tension there. But the word says, do not decrease. This is what God says to them. Do not decrease while you live in that land of Babylon. In other words, what they were called to do in the promised land, they were to continue to do in Babylon. God didn't say, now change your trajectory and change your mission. But he actually said, continue to do this. Similar to when they were in Egypt. They freaked out the Egyptians because Israel kept multiplying. They're like, we got to do something about this. God's people, they keep growing. They keep having babies. So New City is doing really good. <laughs> but think about that. When God's people take up that call to be his people and not fear the world that we live in, but to be under the rule of King Jesus, multiplying, being effective, working our jobs, loving our neighbors, planting gardens, eating the produce, that's natural, makes sense. All these things designed, they, they speak of fruitfulness for God. Now, of course, somebody can do all of these things and be a complete rebel against God, right? So these things don't make anybody holy, but this is what God is saying to His called out people. The conditions around Israel, the conditions around the Jews in Babylon were not to become that convenient excuse for why they were not being productive. Can you see how that could happen to us today? Everything is so horrible and chaotic around us. That's it. I'm not going to do anything anymore. I'm just not going to, I just, there's nothing to do. You ever, you ever fallen into that? That mindset of laziness and apathy? Because things are so bad, where the opposite is true, where God says, well, because you live in the place that you are, be fruitful. Use the gifts that God has given you. Walk with Him. Live with Him. And do it for the sake of God. So there are troubles in our lives because of the fallen world. There's trouble in your life because of the fallen world that you live in, and there always will be. 
And there are hardships in your life. And some of those hardships are because of work. Right? You daily think about work. I hate work. I don't want to go to work. (laughs) Some of you love work because you have the right job. It's great. These hardships, they come because we have to work. We have to strive. We have to plant. We have to harvest. And people are difficult. And people around us are difficult. So it's hard. There will be hardships, but you're here because God has placed you here. God is saying to those in Babylon, you're there because I've placed you there. This is not an accident. These people around you that are pagan, I have you there. Just like God has you around the people that you're around every day at work and in your neighborhoods and where you go. Messy people. Sometimes things that you wouldn't want to come home and share with your family. It's how horrible the world can be, how clashed and opposed to righteousness the world can be, but God has you there. And you're here because God has placed you there. And I think you were, we're better off to take the context of Jeremiah 29, 11 or 29 and all these chapters surrounding it and say, we're going to be here for a while, so let's not get lazy, but let's be fruitful for God. You can see how if you just constantly think of the get out of here mentality, it can affect your witness here. Not only were they to watch themselves and their own conduct, but they were to be mindful of their fruitfulness in Babylon. They were to be intentional about prayer for the welfare of the city. Notice what it says. After he commands them to build houses, he says, verse 7, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. Pray on the behalf of your city. For in its welfare, you find your welfare. So I just want to ask you, do you do this? Do you pray for your city? Whether that be Bath or Brunswick or Topsom or Phippsburg or wherever you live, wherever you are, do you pray for that community? Do you pray for the the community at large? Are you interceding on behalf of the city for its welfare? I mean, we're not sitting around praying for its destruction, are we? I hope not, like, because that's just not logical. Oh, destroy Bath. I live in Bath, you know, or whatever. Like, we, that's not, we don't pray that way, right? That's not kingdom mindset. Christ has come. And if he wanted to destroy the people that he came to, he would have destroyed them, but he didn't, right? What did he do? He died on the cross, and he commissioned the church with the news to rescue those who are being led astray. The people, our neighbors, the cities that are in disarray because of sin, the gospel is the answer. Christ is the answer. So we don't pray for the destruction of the city. We pray for the destruction of sin in the hearts of people. We pray for the destruction of our own flesh so that we would live godly, so we'd be holy. So do you do this? You pray for your city. When we, we prayer walked Bath in the early days of planting New City, and we used to do it all the time, all the time. We do it less now. and have been doing it more in the last few weeks, prayer walking with brothers. If you've never prayer walked before, do it. Get out into your city and your community. Walk by the places that you live near and pray for them. Let, let your eyes fall upon the, the community, the shops, the fire department, the, the hospitals, your neighbors. If you know your neighbors by name, walk by them and pray for them. Pray for their welfare. Do they own businesses? Pray for their businesses. We don't want businesses to fail. Some we might. Okay, we're not making lists here, right? We do want some to fail. But as for the most part, 
We want to see the, t- the communities in which we live prosper and people connect that prospering with a good God who gives good gifts and give glory to Him for it. And that's what we want. And that's what we need to be that example of. And so we would, we would prayer walk bath. We would take teams through the city praying for restaurants and shops and fire departments and owners and families. And you can make these layers of sort of prayer trees. Like, okay, well, here's the, the, the chief of police. Well, what about his spouse? Okay, what about his kids and the school they go to? And what about those teachers? And it just spreads out forever and ever. And you can just keep going, bathing your community in prayer. And why would we do that? And it was largely because of this verse, because of these verses, this context, this story, because this is the city that I live in and the city that you live in, and God loves people. He loves people. You might say, well, I, and this is, I'm stealing this from Tim Keller. He, God loves trees, but he loves people more than trees, so he loves the city more than the country, right? That's what he used to say, and Tim was all about the city, like, go to the city. That's where the people are. And then the whole point of that was to say, we have people that want to retreat to the woods. That's great. And God loves trees too. But he loves people more than trees, right? So just let that be a balance to you. Like, in your level, in the level in which you retreat into your cave, if it pulls you away from people, I think you're off mission. Pray for your towns and the welfare of the people here. Not so that they can know earthly prosperity, but because they, so that they might come to know Christ. Here's the thing that makes all of this so difficult, guys, is we're sinful. We're sinful. It makes this all so difficult. The fact that we, we sin and we're not quick to show compassion like Jesus does. So we walk through our cities and we see the problems around us in our work, and we're not quick to be compassionate. We're quick to show all of our complaints. And to say how much we hate the people that we're around and the cities that we're in and, the, and the, all the stuff that's going with. And that's true. We have things that we should righteously hate. But then there are things that should be very clear that we are compassionate upon people. That we are compassionate towards those who need Christ. And so because of our sin, we look at the world we live in with all of its evils and corruptions. And we forget that God has actually called us to be here. He's called us to live here in the midst of it. So what if you were to take that call a little more seriously today? I'm here in the midst of this, and I'm, I, it's time to start planting gardens, whatever that looks like. You know, well, you, maybe you don't have any land to plant gardens on. That's fine. But there's something about that fruitfulness. I'm going to be fruitful. I'm going to seek the Lord on how I can be productive for His name. Plant gardens, build houses, marry, multiply, and do not decrease. And know that our faithfulness to God, while in exile, will have influence on the kingdom. Our faithfulness to God, while in exile, while in this time of trial, whatever that is, specifically or collectively, it will have influence on the kingdom. The false prophets of that day were much like the prophets of our day. And you've got to even be careful saying that, because I believe the world is full of mostly false prophets. Today, I think that prophecy goes as far as somebody who declares the Word of God. I don't believe prophecy today is to be throwing out predictions or to be trying to pronounce somebody's future over their life if it comes outside of the revealed, written Word of God. But we can prophesy in that we foretell the Word of God that has been revealed to us. And as much as God gives us wisdom to speak God's Word into people's lives, then you are prophesying. But as... It was here with these 
false prophets, it's much like our world today, saying God would not allow you to go through this suffering for much longer. God's design for you is not to suffer. And I think that's the voice of the false prophet. God said, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. So let me just begin to sort of summarize here. Jeremiah 29.11 is not a personal promise to be claimed for safety and blessing in any situation in which you please. We know that for fact now, right? In the context of which it is written and the people to whom it is written, we cannot say that it is a personal promise to be claimed for any and every situation that you might be going through. In that God doesn't want you to have suffering. It's not even a verse about personal prosperity at all, is it? It's not about that at all, according to the context. So Jeremiah 29.11, in its context, is a call to be patient under trial because the timing of God's rescue is perfect. You hear the difference? To be patient under trial because the timing of God's rescue, which for them was 70 years, not two. Don't listen to the false prophets. You're going to go through this trial, and I'm here with you. Be patient under trial because the timing of God's rescue is perfect. Secondly, it's a reminder that God's thoughts toward us, even in hardship, are always good. Isn't that awesome? Even just to pause for a minute and think, God has thoughts toward us. That's amazing, that God thinks toward us. He doesn't just think about us, but he's, his thoughts are toward us. He has plans for us. He does have plans for us, and he thinks about his people, his children, and they are always good thoughts, even, even in hardship. Thirdly, Jeremiah 29, 11 is a reminder not to build our lives on the faulty foundations of earthly dreams, earthly dreams, false prophets who speak nothing but ease, but rather on the foundation of God's sure word that calls us to patient endurance. God's word is the foundation. Earthly dreams, they're going to come and go. You might have a dream that your trials are disrupting, and it might be God's will that he's disrupting that dream because he would rather you be more faithful to him And focus on Him and trust Him in the midst of that trial. So often we think, well, when a trial comes, and false prophets say, well, keep pursuing your dreams. I hope I didn't just look like the false prophet. I I would have had to smile more to look like him. Keep pursuing your dreams. God's given you dreams. When you leave here, your dreams should be fulfilled. Be dream fulfillers. Just go. What a a watered-down waste of time. And we thought, well, why is that a waste of time? It sounds good and people can leave encouraged because it's false. It's not about whether we feel better when we leave or not. It's about whether, whether we've believed and trusted in God's word. Because when you do leave and you go through your next trial and it disrupts your dream or what you thought God was going to do, guess what? You don't have to miss a beat because you can go through every trial and hardship and, and circumstance clinging to Jesus Christ and his hope and eternity and, and be stronger because of it. And God will walk with you through it. So don't build your life on those foundations, those false foundations. And ultimately, the gospel allows us to see this more fully. 
If these were God's thoughts toward exiled Israel, just think about this, then would you imagine that he would think any less of those who are in Christ and under the new covenant of his blood? That if he would say this to Israel, who had yet to even receive the fullness of the promise of Messiah, they were waiting on Messiah. You, brothers and sisters in Christ, who are here, who have trusted in Christ, and you have a new covenant upon you, you are forgiven by Christ, you are sons and daughters of God, do you think he thinks any less towards you than he did of Israel in that day? No. No, not any less. If anything, it's even more, the picture is even more full now. So I want to exhort you today that if you're in a season of waiting or trial or hardship, or maybe you're in need of physical healing and what you have is physical pain, relief from that trial is not your hope. Relief from that trial is not your hope, and that's exactly what the prophets would have been telling these people of that day. But what is our hope? Christ is our hope. Relief from trials is not our hope. We don't look for the relief, we look to Christ. And you will know the false prophets when they begin to tell you to look to the relief instead of to Jesus Christ. Don't forget that to be in Christ is to have eternal life. That's forever. Eternal life. To be in Christ is to have eternal life and to have a fearless outlook on life that allows you to live in this world, build, plant, plan, and be fruitful and multiply because you know you have eternity, because Christ has given you eternal life. Finally, know that God's plans for you are far bigger than simply making your circumstances better. God does have plans for you, but so often we look at those plans and we narrow it down to just our circumstances. That because God has good plans, he must mean, that must mean that I'm gonna, things are going to get better. I'm going to get a job increase. I'm going to get a pay raise. I'm going to get a better house, whatever it is. And most of us know that to be human and to be in this world, that doesn't, just doesn't go that way. Right? So we don't embrace that. What he desires for us is a relationship where you and I trust him with all of our hearts no matter what the circumstances are. And so I'll just close with these words. After Jeremiah 29, 11, let's look at verses 12 and 14. And this is really the sweetness of what that promise looks like. Consider this. Jeremiah 29, verse 12 to 14. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Look at the ultimate promises of Jesus Christ. The ultimate promises is that these trials are temporary, and when we know that sure end will come, the future and the hope, just so you know that word future and hope, it means, it means an intended end. That's what those two words mean, an intended end. God will bring you to his intended end at his timing. That's the future and the hope that he has for you. It's not for evil, it's to redeem you, and he's done it through Jesus Christ. Amen, church? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the clarity of your word, the reminder of Scripture speaking to our hearts today that we should not cling to the words of false prophets, false teachers, who tell us to look to the changing of our circumstances, to the betterment of our life more than Jesus Christ. 
to hope in a physical healing or a relief from pain more than Jesus Christ through that pain. I pray, God, that you give us the faith to believe what your word says and what has been said to us today. Your plans surely are good, but we know those plans often include hardship because you are sovereign God over the hardships of our lives and you will strengthen us. You are strengthening us in the midst of all the seasons that we've had to wait in and wait through. I pray for my brothers and sisters, God, who are in trial right now, in a severe trial perhaps, something that is very pressing and hard, hard to deal with, hard to discern what to do next, begging for wisdom. God, would you grant them wisdom? And would you grant them your ear? And would you speak to them and let them know your love as they seek you with all of their heart? Father, I pray you'd fill this church, God, with your spirit and let us be a light into our community. God, thank you for the encouragement of praying for the welfare of our city, for in its welfare we find our welfare. We do not want to see these cities destroyed. We want to see sin done away with in the lives and the hearts of individuals as they come to trust Jesus Christ. God, equip us and send us as missionaries in this, in this world. God, if there's people amongst us in this room today who they doubt whether they know you or not, or maybe they, maybe they know for sure they are not in Christ, they do not have this hope of eternal life. In fact, their entire hope is in the world or in treasures here, riches or some goal that they have to fulfill in their life. I pray that you'd break that because that is the desire of the flesh. And I pray that you would save souls and, and restore and revive your church and encourage us today with your word. And so we look to you now. We look to Christ and him crucified who has purchased for us eternal life and all that we need for life and godliness and the knowledge of him who loved us pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's message. For more messages from New City Church, check us out on any of the major podcasting platforms, or if you want to find our gathering times, location, or any other information about New City, check out our website at bathnewcity.church. We hope to have you join us next week.